This is a Scream Queen production. of So Dead. I'm your host, Jen Carpenter. Happy True Crime Tuesday. Today's story is a wild one. Uh, There are a few things that I like better than stumbling upon like a long lost story of insanity that the world has forgotten all about, a la the trunk murder mystery episode that I did at the beginning of last year. You guys remember that one? Like this absolutely crazy story that nobody had ever heard because it got lost in the newspapers and disappeared. Uh, The case that we're going to talk about today definitely has those vibes in a lot of ways. It actually reminds me quite a bit of the trunk murder mystery case, and you'll see why when we get into it. So as I also might have mentioned, like a time or 12, uh, I am obsessed with TikTok. I know I'm too old for it, but um, I've been doing these little features on like weird old headlines that I come across in old newspapers when I'm researching stories for So Dead. And that's what this story started out as just like a, hey, whoa, listen to this wild little story. But I quickly realized that there is nothing little about this story. No. This story needs so much more, and today we're going to get into them more. But first, I want to thank today's sponsor. Deborah Newell knows better than most that reality really is stranger and more dangerous than fiction. You may be familiar with Dirty John, but there's so much more to the story. Now, told in Deborah's words with the help of New York Times bestselling author M. William Phelps, comes Surviving Dirty John, a new book featuring insights and revelations never before made public about Deborah, her family, and her relationship with the notorious con man. More than a sensational expose, Surviving Dirty John is a story of trauma, denial, and deception, shedding light on the realities of coercive control from the perspective of a survivor. It's also a story of hope, healing, courage, and love. Eric Bana says, Deborah Newell's journey, her tale of survival, and her openness in sharing her story is awe-inspiring. By helping the world better understand the twisted, manipulative power of coercive control, she is helping us all to identify it. By sharing her story, she has created a pathway for communication in a corridor that has for too long been dimly lit. And Eric Bana, as you know, if you watch the show Dirty John, um, played Dirty John. So um, I watched the show. I watched the show actually before I listened to the podcast, and then I did wind up listening to the podcast. So I saw that this book was coming out before I was even approached about them sponsoring So Dead because, you know, I own a bookstore, so I pay attention to that stuff. And I was kind of just like, "Mm, how many different ways do I need to consume the Dirty John story? I've already watched it. I've already listened to it. Do I need to read about it too? And the answer is yes, a thousand percent. 
everyone should read this book because this isn't Dirty John's story. It's Deborah Newell's story. And I think that anytime we're fortunate enough to hear a story like this directly from a survivor, we need to listen. There's no one else who can tell this story the way that Deborah can. And that's why this book is so important. If you devoured the Dirty John series and you love true crime, you will love this book. It's the perfect gift for the true crime junkie in your life, whether that's you or someone else. It features new, never-before-shared insights into Deborah's life before and after John and includes previously unpublished photos. Deborah's story is the story of a survivor. She lived through a near-fatal child illness, an attempted rape in her 20s, the traumatic death of her sister at the hands of her brother-in-law, and a litany of dating disasters before John came into her life. Surviving Dirty John goes beyond the often sensational headlines, shedding light on the reality of coercive control, how difficult it is to escape, and why that needs to change. The book is filled with resources and information that can help anyone who may be struggling with an abusive and controlling relationship and isn't sure where to look for help. Surviving Dirty John is out now. Learn more and get your copy of Surviving Dirty John today by visiting survivingdirtyjohn.com slash so dead. Or if you're localish to Lansing, Michigan or planning a trip soon, I do carry the book at Dead Time Stories, just saying. Either way, pick up a copy, definitely give it a read. It is, it is worth it. All right, now let's get to today's tale of madness. Picture it. Detroit, Michigan, 1910. On July 19th, the Detroit Police Department received word from a very distraught young woman that her toddler son had been kidnapped, snatched from her arms by a complete stranger in broad daylight. When the woman gave her name as Helen Kaminsky and her son's name as Joseph, police were confused. They had just responded to a kidnapping of the same child a couple days prior. They'd recovered the boy and they'd returned him to his family. So when police were like, you okay, girl? Because we already found your kid and gave him back to you like two days ago. She informed them that her son had, in fact, been kidnapped a second time. Thus began a years-long nationwide search for the Kaminsky boy with so many twists and turns, the biggest of which was, why the hell did it take so long to solve? Because the pieces were right in front of police the entire time. Joseph Lamar Schultz was born to an unwed mother on April 25, 1907, at the Women's Free Hospital in Detroit. His mother gave birth under the alias Helen Schultz, but her real name was Helen Zekshevsky. Listen to me. Polish friends... This shit needs to end. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spell you Helen's last name. I, I found a YouTube video of someone pronouncing it because I know how tricky Polish names are and I knew I was going to pronounce it wrong if I didn't hear someone saying it first. It is spelled Z-A-K-R-Z-E-W-S-K-I. I was definitely going to say Zakharovsky. I just, I was. That's what I was going to say. And it's Zach Shevsky. Come on. Come on. Anyway, as you can imagine, uh, back in the early 1900s, it was scandalous to be an unwed mother. So Helen's family was trying to protect her identity, thus the alias when she gave birth. But 
Unlike most young single women who gave birth in secret back then, Helen did not give up her baby. She kept him. Almost exactly a year after her son's birth on April 21st, 1908, Helen married Philip Kaminsky of Detroit, and Philip adopted Helen's son, at which point the little boy's name became Joseph Lamar Kaminsky. Philip worked for the Grand Trunk Railroad, so he traveled a lot, but Papa was a rolling stone in more ways than one. In 1909, so just about a year into his life as a husband and father, he took out a license to marry a gal named Hattie Nelson, and the clerk at the licensing, licensing, (laughs) I don't know why that was hard for me to say, the clerk at the licensing office was like, uh, no, no, you're already married, bruh, so he wasn't able to get married to a second wife. Uh, In April of 1910, so just as little Joseph was turning three, his deadbeat dad was convicted for non-support, fined $300, which would be almost $9,000 today, so that's a lot of money, and he was sent to the big house for a couple of months. So poor Helen's had a rough few years. She's had a baby out of wedlock. Her husband is trying to take a second wife. He's gone to jail for not financially supporting her and their son, and It should be mentioned, at the time that Philip actually went to jail for non-support, Helen was pregnant with the couple's second child, which was actually their first biological child together. So Philip gets out of jail in June of 1910 when Helen is about eight months pregnant, and her response is to take off. Fuck you, buddy, right? She went and she stayed with her friends, the Morgans, who lived at 889 Hulbert Avenue in Detroit. A few houses down from the Morgans lived a young woman known as Annie, who'd had a rough life of her own. Let's be real here for a minute, though, because what woman didn't have a rough life in the early 1900s? Come on. So in 1906, 17-year-old Anna Rode ran away from her family home in Detroit to seek her fortunes in Chicago, but she found something else entirely. One night at the theater, she met a handsome, dark-eyed man with a charming smile. He told her he was Jose de la Torre. Sounds like a it sounds like a soap opera name to me. Like if someone told me that was their name, I would know they were lying to me because it sounds so made up. But that was what he told her, Jose de la Torre, um, from Peru, the son of wealthy aristocrats who had left him a fortune when they died. But that fortune was back in Peru. So in Chicago, Jose worked as a carpenter. According to a 1913 Detroit Free Press article, Jose was in ardent lovemaker. (laughs) Like, what? Why is a 1913 newspaper talking about someone's bedroom skills? I don't. Okay. So, 17-year-old Anna fell hard and fast for Jose. The young couple dated for just a couple weeks before they were married by a justice of the peace. At this quaint little ceremony, Jose signed a name Anna had never heard before on the marriage certificate, Jose F. Chirinos Lamar. Okay, so for me, that would be a deal breaker if you've totally been lying to me about what your name is, but Anna didn't care. She was in love. He was good in bed, all of that. So Anna's married last name was Lamar. She only picked up the back half of his last name. 
According to her, the first three years of the marriage were wonderful. Jose treated her well, showered her with gifts and affection. One thing she did find strange, though, was that he was always giving people different names. Sometimes he was Jose de la Torre, sometimes he was Jose Chirinos, sometimes he was Jose Lamar, and sometimes he wasn't Jose at all. Sometimes he went by Joseph or James. Uh, And while he continued to tell fantastical stories about the fortune waiting for him back in Peru, no actual money ever materialized. A few years into the Lamar Union, something changed. Jose became jealous and possessive. He would accuse Anna of being unfaithful, and before long, his accusations turned to threats, and his threats turned to physical violence. So in 1910, when she was 21 years old, Anna Lamar returned home to Detroit and sought refuge at the home of her brother, Julius Road. But Jose followed Anna back to Detroit, and the cycle of abuse continued. He was flat-out stalking her, following her everywhere, making accusations and threats, trying to coke her back... Coke <laughs> Probably, maybe. Trying to coax her back to Chicago with empty promises. And when none of that worked, he would try to intimidate her with physical violence. So it was by way of their marriages to shitty men that Helen Kaminsky and Anna Lamar, who Helen knew as Annie, found themselves neighbors in the summer of 1910, both staying at homes on Hulbert Avenue in Detroit to put space between themselves and their abusive husbands. And it was during this time that 21-year-old Anna Lamar grew so attached to three-year-old Joseph Kaminsky um, that one day she just refused to give him back. So Anna was allowed to, you know, take him to play. She took him on walks. She would babysit him. You know, Helen was pregnant and probably exhausted, and the break was nice. So she liked the help. She appreciated the help from this pretty little neighbor lady who then one day was just like, nope, you can't have him back. I'm keeping him. Like, what the fuck? So the Kaminskys called the police, and little Joseph was returned to his parents without incident. But Helen told Anna, you know, you are not allowed around my son ever again, which, understandable. So a couple days after this strange incident, it's July 19th, 1910, to be exact, A very pregnant Helen Kaminsky was out on a walk with three-year-old Joseph. As they walked past Anna's house, which I probably wouldn't have done, but whatever, um, they walked past Anna's house and a buggy rumbled down the road and a handsome, swarthy stranger jumped out. He declared that he was the little boy's real father and he snatched him right from Helen's arms in the middle of a neighborhood on a summer day. Helen fainted from the shock, and when she awoke, she came to two terrible realizations pretty immediately. A, her little boy was gone, and two, she was in labor. Her daughter, who she also named Helen, was born that night as police searched to no avail for little Joseph Kaminsky. The swarthy stranger, of course, was Jose Lamar. He and Anna disappeared with their stolen child, They began calling the little boy Jose, and they told people that they'd adopted the Polish tat from a woman who worked for them and couldn't afford to raise him. Oddly, kidnapping a baby together did not improve the dangerous relationship between Jose and Anna, and they were on and off over the next year and a half. When they were off, 
Jose would disappear with little Jose for months at a time and then call Anna and say, hey, I left him at this boarding house or I dropped him off at an orphanage. You can go get him if you want him. And so Anna would race out and she would go pick him up and bring him home and they'd be settling into a routine. And then Jose would come back around trying to reconcile and when he wasn't successful, he would take off with little Jose again. On October 13th, 1911, during one particularly nasty fight between the estranged Lamars, Jose attacked Anna with a fire poker, beating her about the head and face with it, then slashed her face with a razor, leaving deep scars that she would wear for the rest of her life. And sorry, I know I should probably feel some empathy here, but I really don't because Anna was a baby napper. Jose left her to die, unconscious and bleeding, and took off with little Jose again. A few days later, Jose called Anna's brother's house, and he was disappointed to find out that she had survived his attempt to kill her. Anna's family had Jose arrested, but he begged her to drop the charges, so she did. And, like, (laughs) since when does just, like, a person get to decide whether or not to charge someone with attempted murder? Should that not have been the prosecutor's decision, the police department's decision. Hey, you slashed this woman and bludgeoned her. We don't care what she says. You're going to jail for trying to kill her. Apparently, no. She dropped the charges. Um, But she did divorce him. That, though, was not enough to deter Jose. He followed her everywhere about town, threatening her, chasing her sometimes. And then eventually he gave up. He left Detroit and he returned to Chicago But he took Joseph Kaminsky, a.k.a. Little Jose, who would have been going on about five years old at this point, with him. And Anna just let him. I mean, I guess, you know, Little Jose wasn't actually her son. He was a fucking kidnapped baby. So she moved on with her life. She got married. She married a man by the name of Herbert Haley. They bought a house together on Lillibridge Street in Detroit. Eventually, they would have children of their own but not before Jose Lamar made one last appearance in Anna's life. In July of 1913, Jose surprised Anna at her brother's house. He begged her to take him back, which was odd because he had just remarried himself, like days earlier. When she refused him, he flew into a rage and threatened to kill her, then told her she would never see their son again, and she didn't. But... She was not the only one missing this little boy. His real family, the Kaminskys, were literally traveling the country searching for him. Helen and Philip had two children at this point. They had little Helen, who was born the very day that Joseph was kidnapped, and little Philip, who was born in 1912. Now remember, Philip worked for the Grand Trunk Railroad, so his family just began traveling with him. They were basically nomads. They went to every hospital, every orphanage, boarding house, police department that they could find looking for their stolen little boy. So by 1913, when he was six, Joseph Kaminsky, a.k.a. Little Jose Lamar, had already been taken away from two mothers— Helen Kaminsky, and Anna Lamar. The fate of mother number three would be much, much worse. In the summer of 1913, while still actively stalking his first wife, Anna, Jose Lamar met sales girl Alice Perry at a local dance hall in Detroit, the pier on Jefferson Avenue. If you're curious, I don't know if it's still there. I don't live in Detroit. I don't know. 
You know the place, though. Uh, he was charming, and he claimed to be the heir to a Peruvian fortune, $40,000 to be exact, which would be over a million dollars today. So that's a lot of money. And he was no longer calling himself a carpenter or a contractor. With zero schooling, he was now an architect. He dazzled Alice the same way that he dazzled Anna, and three days after they met, three days after they met, they were married. The first time Alice introduced Jose to her family, it was as her husband. Jose and Alice wed before a justice of the peace on July 10th, 1913. Two days later, on July 12th, a warrant was issued for Jose's arrest for stealing from a business partner. To evade the police, Jose decided to return to Chicago, but he didn't want to take his new wife Alice to the Windy City with him. This was when he went to Anna and made his plea for her to take him back. After she rejected him, he asked Alice, his wife of two days, to go with him, and she did. But just like in his first marriage, Jose was jealous and abusive with Alice. She tried to leave him multiple times before breaking away for good in the fall of 1913. She returned to her family home in Detroit, and soon after, Jose followed. On Sunday, November 17, 1913, Jose Lamar boarded the train from Chicago to Detroit with his arms full of gifts for his wife and her family, a box of cigars for her father, a beautiful new dress for her mother, jewelry for Alice. He went straight from the train station to the Perry home where Alice was not at all happy to see him. He begged her to return to Chicago with him and give him another chance, but she said, no, fuck you, I'm going to the U of M football game in Ann Arbor with my sister, and she left the house. Alice's family tried to keep Jose calm. This was a Sunday afternoon, so on Monday morning, they planned to call the police and have Jose picked up on that warrant that had been issued for his arrest a few months earlier for stealing from his business partner. I don't know why a police department wouldn't be open on Sunday, but apparently they had to wait till Monday morning to do this. So they were just trying to play nice and appease him, but Jose saw through it and he left the house agitated around 11 a.m. A few minutes later, a shot rang out on the corner of Michigan Avenue and 18th Street. The Perrys heard the shot from inside their house. Alice's sister was reported to have cried out, I wonder if that Spaniard is killing my sister. He had murder in his heart when he came here. She probably, I don't know, she didn't sound like that. I'm sure that was really bad. I'm sorry. Um, And that's exactly what Jose had done. He found Alice on the street, waiting to get into a taxi pulled a 36 caliber blue steel revolver from his suit pocket, pressed it to Alice's chest, and fired. He watched her fall, watched as her blood stained the sidewalk, then placed the still-smoking revolver to his temple and fired. His hands were shaking, so his aim was off, and the first shot did not kill him. He shot himself a second time and fell to the ground, but he still didn't die. As he fired off a third shot, he lost control of his muscles, and that shot missed him entirely and hit a nearby house. Alice's family came outside, found her bleeding on the ground, carried her limp body back into the house, where she died waiting for help to arrive. An unconscious Jose Lamar was rushed to St. Mary's Hospital, where he died just before noon on Sunday, November 16, 1913. On his person, the coroner found the following letter. This is my statement to God and to the people who know me. My name is Jose F. Chirinos Lamar, but I sign as follows, J.C. Lamar for short. 
I want to let the people know that I was born in Trujillo, Peru, South America. I am 29 years old and 5 feet 6 inches tall of Spanish descent. I have been in this country since April 19, 1906. My trade is carpenter. I haven't any relatives in South America, so don't let anyone know of this. I met my wife, who was Miss Alice Perry of 416 18th Street, Detroit, the 7th day of July, 1913, and married her the 10th of the same month. Three days. For her extravagance, I ran into debt. My creditors were so strong after me that I had to leave for Chicago, but my wife and I had an understanding that she will come to me, But after my leaving, someone advised her not to come with me and found a lover for her. As far as I can learn, his name is Mr. Rush. That is all I know, but I must say that I love my wife with all my heart, and I kill her rather than see her with anyone else but me. I am a South American. I have that mean blood within me. Yikes, sorry, this is what he wrote. And never will I see my name disgraced in such a shameful manner. Neither do I believe in divorce. You've already been divorced, sir. So it is better for her and me to be dead. Don't think for a minute that I am crazy, for I know everything, and I am doing this only to save me from disgrace. My only advice to all married people is to stick together through thick and thin, and to all single ones not to break a home or people that is trying to live happy. If I get that Mr. Rush, he will go too, for I will set an example for all. Okay, first of all, the last person on the planet that anyone needs marriage advice from is you, Jose. You married both of your wives within days of meeting them, tried to kill one, and killed the other. You don't get to mansplain marriage to anybody. Second of all, Things did not go down exactly this way. Alice did go to Chicago with him, but she left because he was beating the shit out of her. And according to her family, there was no affair. Mr. Rush was a man named George Rush. He was just a business acquaintance of Alice's brother, who Alice only met like one time. So, Jose Lamar is dead. Alice Lamar is dead. And out of the woodwork crawls that cockroach formerly known as Anna Lamar, now Anna Haley. She actually allowed her ugly mug to be photographed for the newspaper where she gave an interview about how awful Jose was, and he was, um, but also about how she wanted her son back. She talked about wanting her son back in the newspaper. The little boy that she had just kidnapped three years earlier from the same city that she gave the newspaper interview to. The audacity, the audacity. But let's talk about that for just a second. The Kaminskys were no longer living in Detroit. They were literally scouring the entire country looking for their son. So they missed all of this shit being published in the Detroit Free Press about the murders. And they always knew who took Joseph. They had Lamar's names. They knew what Anna, at least, looked like. Um... So they would have they would have recognized them if they saw this all in the paper. But because they had left Detroit to search for their son, they didn't see any of these articles. But uh, Detroit Police Department, where are you at on this one? You worked both the Kaminsky kidnapping in 1910 and the Lamar murder-suicide in 1913. 
Granted, Detroit was a big city even back then, but you were literally supposed to be looking for Jose Lamar. You knew who you were looking for. How did you not realize when you found him? Like, I don't, I don't understand. Anyway, Anna Haley, formerly Anna Lamar, went on this big public campaign to get back the little boy that she kidnapped and nobody caught it. That is wild to me. Wild to me. In most of the articles, she said that Jose was absolutely capable of killing their son and that she figured he probably was dead somewhere. She just wanted to know what happened to him either way. In the first bit of happy news in this story, a week or so after the murders, six-year-old Jose Lamar turned up at a Chicago orphanage, so he was not, in fact, dead. Before Jose Sr. left Chicago to go kill Alice in Detroit, he left the little boy in the care of a woman by the name of Gertrude Dingy. Dingy. <laughs> it's either Dingy or Dingy. Dingy. I'm not sure which one's worse. Um, so I don't know what Gertrude's relationship was to the Lamars, if she was like a neighbor or maybe ran a boarding house or something or was one of little Jose's teachers what I do know is that when she took him in, she was only planning to keep him for a few days. So when she found out that Jose was dead, she was like, well, fuck, I wasn't planning on raising this kid for you. Um, she contacted authorities. They tried multiple times to get into contact with Anna Haley, who had been all over the news saying she wanted her son back. Um, so they found him and they tried to give him back, but... <laughs> but she never called the orphanage back. And they're over here like, what the fuck, lady? You were telling any reporter who would listen how much you love your son and want him back, and we found him for you, and now you don't want him. Well, what we know, but authorities still had not figured out at this point, is that Anna probably realized that it was not a good idea to claim custody of a kidnapped child now that all of this had become so highly publicized because of the murders. Um, she might have even thought that them, you know, calling her to try to give her back the little boy was like a trap. What's wild, though, is the Chicago Juvenile Court wrote to the Detroit Police Department and said, we found the six-year-old son of Jose Lamar. What do you want us to do with him? And the Detroit police still still didn't figure out that this was a little boy they'd been searching for or were supposed to have been searching for for years. So Jose Lamar Jr. was sent to a Chicago orphanage and was soon sent to live with foster parents. More on that in a bit. Meanwhile, Helen Kaminsky was still searching for her son, she and Philip made their homes in 32 different cities as they chased leads on their own with the exact opposite of help from any police agencies, obviously. Like, it literally seems like the police were actively working to keep their son away from them at this point. They were so incompetent. In January of 1916, almost six years after her son was kidnapped, Helen found herself back in Detroit. She contacted a local coroner. She gave him her whole spiel, you know, here's how old my son is. Here's what he looked like. He was taken by Joseph and Annie Lamar in 1910. Can you check your records and see if you've had a child come through here in the past six years that might have been my son? And the coroner was like... No, we haven't had any children that might have been your son, 
But you do know the Lamars are dead, right? Like, it was a whole thing a few years ago. Which, that wasn't entirely correct, obviously, as the Mrs. Lamar that was killed was not the same Mrs. Lamar that kidnapped Helen's son. But still, still, the police weren't putting it all together. Like, it should have been easy at this point. The link has been made now between the Kaminsky boy and Jose Lamar. There were literally newspaper articles about what happened to the little boy after the murder-suicide of his parents, quote-unquote. Um, there were legal documents detailing his whereabouts. He was sent to this orphanage, put in foster care with this family. And still, still, authorities took zero steps to help the Kaminskys get their son back. It would be another year and a half before Helen and Philip would find their little boy. And if you think that means that there's going to be a happy ending here, you are going to be sorely disappointed. Before we get to the shocking conclusion of today's story, I need to thank our other sponsor for this episode. Wicked Clothes makes merch geared toward the weird and wicked, true crime, paranormal, cryptids, uh, all of it. Visit wickedclothes.com to check out their just-released Halloween collection. It might still be 80 freaking degrees out every day, but we're watching the horror movies and drinking the pumpkin spice nonetheless, and we need to look the part if we're playing the part, right? They've got Mothman merch, a true crime club shirt, a serial killer documentaries and chill shirt, a hat that identifies you as a paranormal investigator so everyone knows who's in charge next time you're creeping around the cemetery. Lots and lots and lots of stuff. I have a few Wicked Clothes t-shirts, and they're all super comfortable. They're lightweight. They fit really well, true to size, and the designs are just so fun and unique. I love them. My absolute favorite thing is my Mothman sweatshirt. It just needs to get cold enough outside for me to actually be able to wear it. So do yourself a favor. Take a minute or two to browse the Wicked Clothes site at wickedclothes.com. And be sure to use coupon code SODEAD to get 10% off. Or use the link wickedclothes.com slash SODEAD to have the discount automatically applied so that you don't have to worry about forgetting to add the coupon at the end. Again, that's wickedclothes.com slash SODEAD to save 10% off anything on the website. All right, back to it. Get those tissues ready because here we go. July 4th, 1917. While the rest of the country was celebrating America's independence, the Kaminsky family was celebrating a personal victory after seven years of heartbreaking work. Seven years. 32 cities. And finally, one day, Philip Kaminsky walked into the right orphanage, the one where a little boy named Jose Lamar was placed after his adoptive father died. And they knew exactly where this boy, now 10 years old, was. Um, he'd been placed with foster parents Ira and Minnie Nixon of Clinton, Illinois, a small town about 150 miles southwest of Chicago. The Nixons were very wealthy. They lived in a mansion. Ira owned multiple stores. And they had their own sad story to tell. Their only biological child had died in infancy, and their first foster child, a daughter, had died in her teens. They fell in love with the little dark-eyed orphan boy, and they spoiled him with lavish gifts and trips and the kind of life he'd only dreamed of. The orphan, with many mothers, as he was dubbed by newspapers, had lived an unstable life with his first mother before he was stolen from her at the age of three. 
a violent life with his second mother before he was taken away from her at the age of four, a tragic life with his third mother before she was murdered when he was six, a short life with his fourth mother who turned him over to an orphanage before he turned seven, but mother number five was wonderful, and for the first time in his life, little Jose Lamar, as he was still being called, had stability. Until the day he found out that his entire life was a lie. So, in the first couple articles about the Kaminskys finding their son, it sounds like they're in Chicago together. But then the stories very quickly switch to only talking about Helen. So, it sounds like for whatever reason, Philip left her in Chicago to fight to get their kid back on her own. I don't know, maybe he had to go back to work or maybe he just took the kids back home to Detroit. I'm not sure where he went or why, but Helen wasn't going any fucking where. She rented a room at a boarding house located at 1339 Jackson Boulevard in Chicago and was like, I did it with no help from you fuckers. I found my son. Give him back to me. And the courts were like, "Mm, hold on, ma'am. First of all, we need to verify this wacky story you're telling, which fair. That part's fair. It does sound pretty far-fetched. But then they were like, even if he is your son, you don't really have any rights to him anymore. He was abandoned in Chicago. We did what we're required to do, and we posted the information about him in the local newspaper. You didn't respond, so legally, he's a ward of the state. Like, why would she be reading the daily Chicago newspaper? The story started getting a ton of press, both in Chicago and Detroit. Helen was loud, and she wasn't letting her son be kept from her any longer. She found out where the Nixons lived, and she rolled up to their mansion with a bunch of reporters, and Mrs. Nixon slammed the door in her face. Can you even imagine, after searching for seven years, finding your child, going to the place where he was, knowing he's on the other side of the door and they won't let you in to see him? I would have burned that fucking house to the ground to get my kid out. Right away, though, the press seemed to be on the Nixon side. They were a wealthy, upper-class family, whereas the Kaminskys were poor. And, I mean, they were still pretty unstable. Um, No permanent address because they were traveling the country looking for their kid. Mom and dad were still splitting up and getting back together a whole bunch. Dad was in and out of jail for various things. So the newspapers were just immediately siding with the Nixons. They're such good people. They've already lost two children. They're taking such good care of him. He's happy with them. And all that might have been true, but they weren't his fucking parents. He got snatched out of his mother's arms, literally. She didn't do anything wrong. Her child was stolen from her. Give him the fuck back. Listen to this shit, though. This is from the July 6th, 1917 Chicago Tribune. If, in the loss of a princely estate, there is recompense in maternal love, then Joseph Lamar Kaminsky, kidnapped seven years ago, will be happy. Otherwise, he will weep for his salad as he munches on his sauerkraut. Joseph is now the idolized foster son of a wealthy family occupying a stately country place west of Chicago. But he does not know that in Chicago, his father and mother, Mr. and Mrs. Philip Kaminsky, desirable citizens but poor, 
are endeavoring to prove his birth so that they can take him from velvets to denim, from a castle to a cottage. What in the actual fuck? Later in the article, it features an interview with Helen, which, knowing how this ends, as you're going to know very soon, I when I found this, I was bawling my eyes out. I had customers in my store, and I'm sitting there crying reading a paper that's like 100 years old. Okay. Can you prove the boy is your son? A reporter asked. We shall prove it. But he is in beautiful surroundings. He will be given education and wealth. I am his mother. He doesn't know anything about the past, and he believes his rich foster parents are his own. I am his mother. Would you take him from luxury and every advantage? I am his mother. Even for his sake, you would not leave him happy? I am his mother. I love him. Then you will take him away. I want my boy. A custody hearing was scheduled for July 19, 1917. Ironically, seven years to the day, to the day that Joseph was kidnapped. The newspaper speculated that he would be given back to his mother. He had not been formally adopted by the Nixons. His mother hadn't abandoned him or relinquished custody through any fault of her own. The courts might be able to find ways to keep him from her legally, but ethically they couldn't, and because the press was paying so much attention to this case, they weren't going to get away with their usual bullshit. But then, the night before the hearing, Helen Kaminsky simply left town. She packed up her things, and she went back home to Detroit, telling the landlady of the boarding house where she'd been staying that she'd, quote, seen what a wonderful home the Nixons had given her son, and that she would withdraw rather than stand in the path of his advantage. So after all of that searching, all of that fighting, that's what she did. She withdrew. I don't know if she even got to see her son face to face. It really doesn't sound like it. The Nixons wound up adopting the little boy and his name was legally changed to Jose Lamar Nixon. What a slap in the face that he kept the name that his kidnapper gave him. But (laughs) let's talk about that for a second. So here is the final twist in a story more twisty and turny than a fucking tilt-a-whirl. The name that the kidnapper slash murderer slash villain in our story most commonly went by was Jose Lamar. Although sometimes he gave a number of different first and last names, one of those first names was Joseph. So sometimes he went by Joseph Lamar. The name that Helen a single mother, gave her son at birth was Joseph Lamar Schultz. What are the fucking chances that the first and middle name she gave her son were the same first and last name of the man that would go on to kidnap him a few years later? I do not think this is a coincidence, especially when you consider the following— Helen had a habit of naming her kids after their parents. She named her daughter, Helen, after herself, obviously. She named her second son, Philip, after his father. She never told anyone the name of Joseph's actual father. 
Jose slash Joseph um, Lamar lived just a few doors down from a friend that Helen visited frequently, often for weeks or months at a time. When Jose took baby Joseph, he claimed that he was his real father. And everyone thought it was strange when Jose told them that the boy was adopted because apparently he looked just like him. Listen to this quote given to a newspaper by a former business associate of Jose's after the murder-suicide. Lamar had a boy with him about five years old, the perfect image of himself. He told several stories about how he got the boy. He said that he was the child of a washwoman who worked for him, and again he stated that the boy was the child of a Polish couple and that he adopted him out of pity when the parents beat the child. I don't know what became of the child, but from having sized up the boy on many occasions, I should say that Lamar was the father. He even called him Jose. So, friends, I am like 97% sure that Jose actually was the father. I know, total like Empire Strikes Back moment, right? But if it's true, and it totally is, then why wouldn't Helen just say that? Why would she keep that a secret? My only thought is that, you know, it was scandalous enough to be an unwed mother in 1907, but to have a child out of wedlock with a man of another nationality that had literally just come to the U.S. a few months before she got knocked up, I don't know. Maybe that had something to do with it. What do you guys think, though? Like, we need Maury on this one. As far as what became of Joseph Lamar Kaminsky slash Jose Lamar Nixon, he got married. He had kids, two girls, Elizabeth and Carol. He and his family moved to Roswell, New Mexico at some point. He lived a long life. He died in 1982 when he was 74, and he was buried in Clinton, Illinois, alongside his adopted parents. But here's something that made me sad. His obituary said, verbatim, he was born April 25th, 1907 in Detroit, Michigan, a son of Ira I. and Minnie Campbell Nixon. No mention at all of his birth family, which leads me to believe that he never reconciled with his mother in any sort of way, which has to mean that he never knew the real story. Because with all of the things that are unclear about this story, and there are a lot of them, one thing that's crystal fucking clear is that Helen loved that boy. So much so that she broke her own heart, and mine by the way, to give him the best life that she could. And the fact that he never knew that is is like the biggest tragedy of all in all of this. I don't know. It, it makes me so sad. Anyway, that is the absolutely insane tale of the kidnapping of Joseph Kaminsky. Thank you for coming to my dead talk. My only sources for today's episode were old newspaper articles because this story is not anywhere. I found it on a whim, and I cannot believe that I thought this was a story I could tell in a TikTok. Like, not even one of the three-minute ones. This is way too much. Way too much. TikTok can't handle it. Now, it's time for some liquid cheese. Last time, I asked you to tell me about your broken bones. Today, I have a very specific question also related to pain and injuries. Have you ever had an airbag deploy on you? Like, have you ever been in an accident or a situation where your car thought you were in an accident and your airbag just went off, like blew up in your fucking face? Because if not, I'm going to tell you what that feels like. 
it feels like shit. <laughs> um, I have only had it happen to me once. It was maybe 12-ish years ago. I was on my way to work in the morning, and everything happened so fast I didn't realize what happened at first. Um, thankfully, there were witnesses that called the police, and they helped shed some light on why I just slammed right the fuck into the back of a car. Um, so I was almost to my place of employment. Fun fact, I would go on to total two vehicles at the Jolly Cedar intersection in Lansing, neither of which were my fault, by the way, on my way to work. Just a sign that I had no business working where I was working. It was not the place for me. So yeah, I'm on my way to work. Um, I'm getting to the point where I'm about to turn into the parking lot. And you know, it's morning, so I'm still tired, you know, shaking the cobwebs out, whatever. But all of a sudden, I just realized that there's this car directly in front of me and it's not moving and I'm going to hit it. And I had about a split second. I was like, oh, fuck, I'm going to hit her. There's no way I can stop. And then I hit her. I slammed on my brakes, of course. I turned the wheel to try to, like, you know, not hit her straight on. And um, (laughs) I had, like, a tenth of a second to have the thought of, like, okay, all right, you're okay. It wasn't that bad. And then just chaos, like, full on I didn't even realize what was happening. Just this violent explosion in my face. My skin was on fire, stinging. Like all of the videos I've ever seen of an airbag exploding, it's this soft, gentle, like, poof. It is not a poof. It's so violent that it shatters your windshield. When you see an accident where the airbags have deployed and the windshield's shattered, the windshield is shattered because of the fucking airbags. Like, that's that's the reason, which I didn't know until it happened to me. So my car was old. My car was, like, from the 80s, and this was the 2000s. So it was not only 80s, probably 90s. I'm, I'm dating it. It was an old-ass car, at least 20 years old. So the uh, gunpowder, is it gunpowder? Whatever it is that makes it explode was, like, stale and musty, I managed to pull the car into the parking lot, which was my, I was at work. Like I pulled the car into my work parking lot. I got out. Um, the woman that I hit, like I felt horrible. And so I immediately was like, are you okay? She was like, I'm okay. Are you okay? I was like, I hit you. Like, I'm so sorry. And I'm still not understanding how this happened, how like I didn't see her. She was just on the road right in front of me. And she was like, I'm okay. If you're okay, I got to go. And she took off. (laughs) She just left. And her car was totaled. So she definitely, like, didn't have insurance or didn't have a license or both, probably. Um, But she took off. So I'm there by myself. I call my boss because I'm at work. I'm in the parking lot. And I'm like, oh, my God, I just got in an accident. Please come out here. And I'm crying. And my horn starts going off. So it's like. You know, like that, like something was pressing on it because everything got all messed up when the um, airbag went off and someone had called the police so I could hear, you know, the police coming. I could hear the sirens and the police officer gets there and she is like, yep. So the witness is set and she's like, where's the other car? I was like, dude, she left. Like, I don't know. She left. I hit her and she left and I'm crying and I'm in shock. And at this point, my body's starting to feel it, right? Like I had a concussion. I had a neck injury. Um, My knees hit the dash. So those were messed up. And I'm starting to kind of feel these things at that point. 
And the police officer's like, well, the people, you know, we had a few people call it in and they said that the car that you hit, the other car didn't have brake lights. And so then it made sense. That's why it never registered in my brain that she was stopped. She was stopped to turn into the same parking lot that I was going to turn into. But I didn't realize it because she didn't have brake lights. So I just kept going at full speed until I was so close to her that, like, I don't know. I don't know. So long story short, it wound up not being my fault, even though I still kind of feel like it was my fault. Um, But, yes, when an airbag goes off, it is violent. That Like, that was the worst part. That was the worst part of the accident was the airbags going off. Like, I know they are meant to protect you, but in this instance, it actually made it worse. It was like this violent, painful, I looked like I had a sunburn for like a week and a half. It ruined my new winter coat, and then they were sold out of it at Fashion Bug, so I couldn't go get another one. It was tragic. Um, yeah, so that was my airbag story. Do you have one? I'm going to post this. I promise I will this time. I keep forgetting to post these in the Facebook group. Um, but I'm going to post this in the Sodad Facebook group for you to sound sound in, sound off, for you to sound off on and let me know about your horrible experiences with airbags exploding in your face. New episode coming your way in a couple of weeks. It's going to be our Halloween episode. So I'm still at this point taking submissions, but I'm going to close those real soon. So if you have a good ghost story that you want in our Halloween episode, get it to me as soon as possible. You can message it to me on Facebook. You can email me at sodeadpodcast at gmail.com. Make sure to specify whether you want your story to be anonymous or whether it's okay to use your name. If you don't specify, I'm using your name. Yeah, so make sure you're following Sodad on all of the socials, especially TikTok, which it's under Scream Queen 517 because I just do everything under one TikTok account. Um, and that's where today's story came from. So kind of lots of good content on there. I'm trying at least. Um, until next time, keep shining, you magnificent what the fucks, and I will see you soon.